On this edition of the program, we go over some television ads from the big players and one that's going to require a little bit of explanation and talk about the confidence gap between Trump supporters and Biden supporters. One of them is terrified. The other is ebullient. All that with Gabe Fleischer of the Wake Up to Politics newsletter. It's all next. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for September 13th, 2023. Your old pal Justin Robert Young here. I I don't know if I've ever said this with as much gratitude in my voice as I've said the phrase, thank God it's 95 degrees outside. I am down on my knees Hands outstretched, eyes to God, when I say thank you. Thank you, it's only 96, because it has been a brutal summer down here in Central Texas. Uh, uh, No rain, like we were blind melon, for the vast majority of a just scorcher up into the Wano's. 103, 105, 107, I think, was the hottest. That it got here. We're not quite Phoenix, but holy smokes, we are not far off. But Labor Day behind us, we put all of our white clothes in the closet. And thankfully, we have had a little bit of a break. And dare I say it, I almost don't, in case it doesn't happen. We might have 80 degree highs by the end of the week. Oh. I might not go inside. I might record outside. But you guys, you guys don't have to skimp on anything. We're going to uh, go over some television ads here. Here's the first from President of these United States, Joe Biden. It was the first time in modern history. Very significant moment on the world stage. That an American president went into a war zone not controlled by the United States. A nearly 40-hour journey in and out of Ukraine. President Biden left Washington, D.C. at 4 a.m. on Sunday. He landed in eastern Poland and then took a nine and a half hour train to Kiev. He entered Ukraine under the cover of night. And in the morning, Joe Biden walked shoulder to shoulder with our allies in the war-torn streets, standing up for democracy in a place where a tyrant is waging war to take it away. Air raid sirens blared as the two men walked together. In the middle of a war zone, Joe Biden showed the world what America is made of. That's the quiet strength of a true leader who doesn't back down to a dictator. Biden, president. I'm Joe Biden, and I approve this message. So we're going to hear from our guest a little bit later in the show. But Joe Biden has a need to demonstrate vitality. He is delivering on the promise that he is restoring honor to the White House and showing that he's not currently taking a little nap. And so we get this dramatic, fairly personal hero's portrait of him traveling to Ukraine. And it is certainly no mistake 
that it is about as involved as an influencer talking about how early they wake up. It is not unlike the rock talking about his workout routine up at three in the morning, clanging and banging. Now the politics in Ukraine, because that's what you would, the reason why this isn't just Joe Biden can wake up early and go to sleep late is the Ukraine element. And that seems to be a little fluid right now politically. A majority of Democrats still solidly support the war effort and the money that it will take to continue to roll. But there is a softening in those numbers. And as far as the country itself, a CNN poll in August showed that a majority of Americans don't agree with further funding of the war, at least when it comes to Congress giving them money. So, this is not a slam dunk political case for Joe Biden, but it is absolutely a slam dunk personal study that he is not weak. He is not feeble. Anybody who says anything about him being a little bit too tired. Well, I don't know what you're talking about because this man can go to Europe into a war zone that air raid siren played. And he looked cool as a cucumber the whole time. Aviator shades and all. Biden, Biden, Biden. I do think that they would have pretty much run the same ad if he had, like, run a marathon and then signed legislation. That's kind of what they're going for. Let's swing on over to the front runner on the Republican side. This is Donald Trump's most recent ad. They come from different walks of life, but all have one thing in common. They want their country back. Parents who want to take back control of their children's education. Veterans tired of being kicked to the curb. They believe in protecting the sanctity of life, securing our borders, standing for the flag, kneeling for God above, and an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. Hillary made fun of them. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Biden called them a threat. The migrant Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. And DeSantis degradingly called them listless vessels. No, they aren't, Ron. They're great Americans who know there's one person who will always have their backs. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. This is... An ad that you run when you're winning. (laughs) This is an ad that you run when you believe you are at the front of a movement. And the fact that Joe Biden refers to MAGA is proof in and of itself that Donald Trump is at the head of a movement. This is his movement. The enemies agree on it. The, the 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 friends agree on it. That means it certainly is a thing. And so a populist candidate runs an ad with the people at the fore. The baseline claims here are fairly uncontroversial. The goal here, I think, is to normalize the idea that it is not that MAGA is extreme. MAGA is the baseline. MAGA is normal. What is extreme are condescending career politicians 
who are thumbing their nose at the will of the people. And we list off those offending polls, Hillary, Biden, and DeSantis. The underlying message here is doubt the Trump train at your peril. MAGA are not zombies. They are not cultists. They are not especially awful. They are your neighbors. And they are about sick and tired of you and your fancy pants opinions thinking that they are less than. So let's take a look at DeSantis. This is his most recent ad. We have a secure border. The border is secure. Someone on the terror watch list was arrested at our border. 300,000 fentanyl pills. A horrific kidnapping. Four Americans. The cartels battled just miles from the border. The cartels are killing tens of thousands of our fellow citizens. We have to defend our people. We're going to use force and we're going to leave them stone cold dead. No excuses. We will get the job done. Never back down. He's responsible for the conscience uh, of the... the lament of the non- Trump GOP candidate. Can't we just attack the administration? Oh, you're in a primary. You attack people on your own side now. Later, you attack the administration. You all agree that the administration stinks. I don't think anybody is up there on on the debate stage or named Donald Trump that is like, oh, well, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they're doing great. This is a fine explainer on why DeSantis is a competent administrator who could probably achieve MAGA goals where Trump did not. But the problem is when DeSantis is going into his I'm going to kill him stone cold dead routine, you're trying to out bluster Trump. Like. This is already a field in which Trump has said that we should have the death penalty for drug dealers, like domestic drug dealers. DeSantis is offering to kill fentanyl smugglers. I mean, you just can't, you can't out hyperbole the man. You couldn't do it in 2016. And you certainly can't do it now that he actually has foreign policy experience from one term in the white house. So in my opinion, please hold for more free DeSantis advice. You have to explain the actual mechanisms to do things that Trump did not and point out that they were available in 2016 through 2020. You know, something that DeSantis actually did pretty well on his Twitter spaces, and I would imagine that he's done pretty well in other interviews, but you got to put that out there. You got to normalize that. You got to say, I will declare a national emergency at the border and that will bring in X, Y, or Z. Donald Trump didn't. I don't know why he didn't, but he did. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it on day one, whatever. Because the place that Trump 24 doesn't want to be is to be talking about how many MAGA priorities he didn't get done and why he didn't get them done. The way it is now, if you don't point this out, then here's the standard truth that just exists. The radical left stood in my way. I would have had an amazing presidency, the best presidency, 
If it weren't for Russia, 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 and the Ukraine hoax, the perfect phone call, the blah, 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 all, all that stuff, right? And by the way, I do think that the existence of all that is stuff that the right very much pays attention to when looking at the current legal situation for Trump that I don't really think gets enough conversation in the way of analysis. That's a different point. But if you start pointing out, hey, no matter what, no matter how much pressure was going to be put on you, you still had these levers and you didn't pull them. Then you get Trump in a, in a position that you want. Something that he likes to do is totally destroy his enemies. And the good news for you, if you want to paint him as an incompetent manager, is that he loves slagging off his enemies that used to work for him. Trump will talk a lot about the people he brought in. Some people might say at the time, quote unquote, the best people. And why they are now all haters and losers. If you do that, you draw a line in the sand. I don't know how many times I can keep saying this stuff. I don't think it's going to happen. Because if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. I'm done offering free advice to Ron DeSantis. We're going to wrap it up with something a little fun. Shout out to Diamond Scoop, who sent this in. I'm going to play this without context and then explain it. Here is the debut advertisement for the presidential campaign of Tomo Umar. Hey, you love America? Subscribe. <laughs> Do you find yourself searching for a needle in a haystack for hope in our nation's tomorrow? Look no further. Saddle up alongside me, my ride or die compatriots. My campaign slogan is let's lead America to greener pastures. More horsing around. Yes, indeed. Without question, you've never seen a horse participate in a race quite like this. And without question, I'm the only one who's got the horsepower needed to carry this country forward. Because I'm not just an American, I'm a mayor who can. Enlist in the Umarmi today and vote Tomo Umari for your 2024 United States President. Tomo Umari is a self-described tomboy horse girl military VTuber. <sighs> okay, let's start with horse girl. According to Urban Dictionary, a horse girl is a girl who wears t-shirts with horses on them and tapered denim pants, has really long hair in which they braid and fasten with a scrunchie in the back. They will gallop on the track during gym class they're only friends with other girls who like horses and will look down on you because you are not a horse. Second definition. A crazy middle-class white girl who is obsessed with horses. Now, from the limited amount of time that I have spent looking at the Tomo Umari channel on YouTube, I suspect that she's playing with some of these tropes, most specifically the tomboy element of it. Which brings us to what a VTuber is. Mom, I'm, I'm specifically doing this for you. Speaking very generally for a lay audience, a VTuber is somebody who live streams and produces YouTube videos as a cartoon. 
Thanks to extraordinarily cheap and widely available motion tracking technology, the cartoon moves and makes facial expressions in sync with the streamer. This creates a realistic rendering. It's not an insignificant subgenre of content creation, by the way. In 2021, there were an estimated 16,000 VTubers, and I would venture that in the year of our Lord 2023, there are even more. And so, since you know that the voice that you heard was that of a human, and yet the visuals that are on screen are that of a cartoon, I can now describe that Tomo Umari is and I'm I'm doing my best here, kind of a girl-next-door version of Lara Croft, Tomb Raider Lara Croft, with horse ears. This makes her more of a literal kind of horse girl, like a girl that is also a horse, although the horse elements, aside from the ears, are very, very muted compared to the girl elements anthropomorphically. I have not, for example, seen those kind of abs on a horse. I'm going to take a guess that this puts her on the fringe of the furry subculture, dipping a toe, maybe, or rather a hoof. But I will leave that to another internet scientist to diagnose from afar. Anyway, Tomo Umari, a mayor who can, announcing her run for president. We will talk uh, a little bit more seriously about the race between President Biden and former President Trump with uh, Gabe Fleischer of the Wake Up to Politics newsletter right after this. This is your update for this week. I guess I already said the date at the beginning, but brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you support this very show. Look, who else is doing serious breakdowns of Trump ads, serious breakdowns of Biden ads, serious breakdowns of DeSantis ads, and then explaining to you the intellectually hungry viewer What a tomboy military horse girl VTuber is, huh? Hacks on Tap doing that? Pod Save America doing that? Ruthless doing that? I don't think so. I don't think so. This place. This is it. PX3. Support this program at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Get two bonus episodes each and every week. If you, uh... Pony up $3. Less than the price of a cup of coffee. Let's go ahead and get to your update. And uh, we got some interesting stuff here. Let's start with Josh Howley, Missouri's senior Republican senator, steering the GOP in a more populist direction. He is advocating for the working class by proposing legislation to cap credit card annual percentage rates at 18%. They are as high as the mid-20s now. This is notably to the left of White House strategies, let alone the GOP. 
and aligns more with the efforts of progressives like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who had previously attempted to cap the rates at 15. Despite the skeptical outlook on its passage, spoiler alert, it ain't happening, Howley insists that it's unlikely banks would forsake substantial profits by abandoning large market segments, rooting his argument in the foundational principles voiced by leaders like Lincoln and Roosevelt, emphasizing a balanced approach to labor and capital rights, critiquing the prevailing neoliberal philosophies of recent decades, which, according to him, have favored capital excessively. His stance, echoing the sentiments of a growing faction within the GOP, underscores a potential realignment as the party seeks to reinvent itself as the champion of blue-collar Americas, even if it means spurning corporate allies. You know, I don't think this is going anywhere. It is interesting to see moves like this. We'll see exactly what happens going forward, but interesting. Andrew Yang, former Democratic presidential candidate and founder of the Forward Party, has recently engaged in discussions with no labels concerning its potential third party presidential bid. During an interview at Politico's headquarters, Yang refrained from giving a direct response when asked if he was approached to run as a potential candidate, emphasizing his alignment with any movement opposing Trump's reelection. Yang critiqued that the anticipated Trump-Biden rematch of the 2024 election is terribly unrepresentative due to their advanced ages and speculated on the possible impacts of other third-party candidates in the race. He also highlighted the distinct approaches of his forward party, which focuses on local contests to influence national politics from grassroots and no labels, which is concerning, uh, sorry, concentrating a unity ticket, presidential campaign, As we have reported here on this show, Governor Chris Sununu, Senator Joe Manchin, and others have long been on that short list. Very interesting, because the Forward Party was allegedly part of a Stop No Labels confab not but a few months ago. When I was at a Forward Party event after that, I asked Yang directly whether or not he had any knowledge of it, and he said no. But he knows enough about no labels that apparently now he has talked to them about running. So pumped for this no labels convention. So pumped. And here's the big news of the day. Kevin McCarthy telling House Republicans in a closed meeting that he has endorsed an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Kevin McCarthy is trying to keep the government open. He knows that the Freedom Caucus on his right is desperate to launch an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. They don't agree on doing it. Some, I mean, Kevin McCarthy normally would not do anything that he doesn't have the votes for. And I don't think he has the votes for this. But if he doesn't launch it, then Matt Gates is threatening to Take him out of his speakership. And apparently, according to other reporting, Matt Gates has approached Democrats to do it. They seem less than enthused as for now. So uh, there is the question of whether or not it's going to happen. There is the question of what exactly it would be targeting. And then there is the question of what McCarthy is really trying to do. 
And from my perspective, he is really trying to stay speaker. So he's got to swing a little bit here so he can get a little bit on the other side. A lot is happening. There's probably even things that have happened after I I get this out. So I, I might release this a little early so it doesn't get too far out of date. But my suspicion is what Kevin McCarthy believes he owes the Freedom Caucus is for him to toss this out. I believe it's going to get pushback within its own party. And I don't think it's going to happen. And McCarthy probably won't be able to keep the government open either. I think he has like 18 days to do it. Good luck. Take politics seriously. Com is where you need to go to support this show. Three dollars, three bucks a week. If you would buy me one cup of coffee. For two bonus podcasts each and every week. Well, then I got the deal for you. Head on over there right now. Take politics seriously. Com. And now back to the show. Do you believe that your choice for president is going to win? Not whether you like them, not whether they are smarter, better, or more virtuous than their opponent. But do you believe they're going to win in 2024? Well, the answer to that question, if you are a Trump or Biden supporter, is stark. On the right, a lot of confidence. Yes, Donald Trump will come back to the White House. On the Biden side, not so much. Here to discuss that and the rest of our current political meta is, for my mind, one of the best young minds in this business and somebody whose newsletter, Wake Up to Politics, is a must-read. Gabe Fleischer, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You had a great topic in your Wake Up to Politics newsletter, which I would recommend everybody listening uh, subscribe to. And that is the confidence gap between the Democrats and Republicans. And while in general, I do subscribe to the idea that only true sickos like you and I should be paying attention to polling this early in a presidential race. There's enough of a sample size between the Republican and Democratic Party past 2016 that this is a consistent thing and it seems to have gotten wider. So explain to folks what the confidence gap is. Yeah, so so basically the way I see it is, you know, if you look at almost every poll of the election, as you say, it is early, but we do have a bunch of them. So at every poll, you see Biden and Trump almost exactly tied. I think the real clear politics average right now has Biden up like a half a percentage point. The CNN yep. poll the other day had Trump up one point. So, you know, every poll kind of shows that exact same thing. And yet, when you ask the question of who people think will win, there's this big gap where Republicans, like something like 60% of Republicans are super confident Trump will definitely win the 2024 election. And then a lot of Democrats basically agree with that. And a lot of them are very nervous. You have almost exact same percentage of Democrats, very nervous that Biden is destined to lose. And even though they're basically tied in every poll, you have this huge gap between Democrats or between Republicans super confident about their choice and Democrats feeling incredibly anxious about their nominee. And this specifically seems to be tailed to the two candidates, that that it is Donald Trump for which people have faith in because he did the impossible in 2016 and then the unlikely in 2020 and losing. Uh, but also Joe Biden, who not only secured the big win in 2020, but for whatever reason, 
Democrats are doubtful about whether or not he even should run, let alone the ability for him to beat Donald Trump twice. Yeah, I think I think like you said, I think this is all about these kind of the histories we have with these two candidates. I think, you know, for Donald Trump, I think a lot of people would look at a candidate facing four different criminal indictments and think, how can this person possibly win? Except <laughs> that's what a lot of people thought exactly about him in 2016, and then he did. And so I think there's been this kind of magical aura, even though you know his party did not do well in 2018, he nope. lost in 2020, and his party did not do well in 2022. And yet there still is, for political professionals on both sides, this kind of magical aura around him that he's gotten past things like this before, and, and he's going to do it again. And then for Biden, there's also this aura around him for a long time, you know, that anytime he wins, it's because he's lucky, he kind of yep. snatches it through at the end, but that a lot of political professionals for a long time have counted Biden out. Um, you know, they didn't really believe in him in 2020, um, in the primary, even after he won, you know, in the end, it was a comfortable-ish victory, at least on par with Trump's in 2016, but it took a few days. Kind of people thought, you know, maybe it would get snatched away from him. And then now, obviously, his polling is incredibly weak, you know, on a number of different factors. So let, let's stay on the Trump side first, and then and then we'll swing over to Biden. Mm-hmm. It appears, at least from my vantage point in looking at these polls, that the indictments have been nothing short of rocket fuel for him, <laughs> that however much you want to criticize Ron DeSantis and Trust me, there's another, you know, po- whole podcast uh, that we have uh, done in commentary over the last few weeks about my my issues with it. But still, the fact that we have not in national polling seen one of the other options, a Nikki Haley, a Vivek Ramaswamy, a Tim Scott overtake him seems to suggest to me that this is more about Trump. We are in a Trump centric universe where a portion of the electorate has gathered behind him. And yet. This is all based on polling still, I mean, you know, fairly early in 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 the process, which suggests that there just is either between the legal stuff or the the fact that he's had one of the most uh, uh, strange political careers of of all time just seems to kind of uh, hang around him. How, How from your vantage point would you describe just the the. Trump centric universe that the Republicans are are operating around, even to the point of excitement that 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 he is going to win confidence that he is going to win. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, there is an important distinction that the indictments have been rocket fuel for him in primary polls. But obviously yes. in the general election, you know, probably hasn't really had much of an impact either way. Well, well but, um, but even then, it's argue- like uh, it has solidified his position against Biden. I mean, that was the entire case right. for Ron DeSantis was that Ron DeSantis polled better than Biden. Trump gets indicted four times and now Trump is doing better than DeSantis in the Biden polls. So it does seem to have at least some some uh, uh, help in in the general election as well. Or at the very least, not hurt as much as you might. Mm -hmm. And and I and I do think, yeah, I mean, I think you look at Republicans. I mean, this is something Trump has been priming for for his entire political career. You know, this is someone who's been investigated going back to, you know, the 1980s or 70s, had continuous criminal investigations and it's been his whole career. You know, first kind of in media and then in politics, you know, priming distrust of the investigators, you know, doubting, you know, kind of these kind of agencies, the FBI, U.S. attorney's offices. And he's been doing this since 2016, you know, seeding distrust that, you know, when they're coming after you, they actually when they're coming after me, they're actually coming after you. I'm just in the way. Yes. Yes. That messaging, especially because he's been, you know, kind of sending out four years since the beginning of his political career, it's it's grown to be a very effective one, I think, for Republicans. I think there is this this sense of kind of, you know, Trump is under siege. Everyone's against him, which means everyone's against us. You know, the media is against him. You know, the criminal you know law enforcement establishment is against him. 
And, and that kind of adds up to, you know, this kind of, you know, siege mentality of, you know, everyone is against us um, and he is our champion. He's the only one that can kind of, you know, fight again. You know, and DeSantis also talks about kind of dismantling the deep yeah. state, dismantling, you know, the FBI and things like that. Um, and, and frankly, has probably a better record than Trump of showing he might be able to do that, considering Trump is the one who appointed Christopher Wray. <laughs> and yet just clearly... Um, there is this love and affection for Donald Trump that has persisted for a lot of Republicans and this faith in him that that he is the true fighter and he's the true one who could um, kind of get in there and dismantle the deep state. And that if he doesn't, they'll be going after all sorts of Republicans, perhaps even kind of rank and file Republicans, kind of targeting political enemies. You know, I think that's the kind of language that he's been speaking in, this yeah. kind of vindictiveness and kind of attacking enemies, you know, since the beginning of his political career. And now it's kind of come home to roof where now people actually think he needs to get in there and do it. My sense of this race is that there's about 30% that is diehard. They'd, they'd rather move out of America than not vote for Donald Trump. And they've always been with him. And then there's the rest that's kind of up for grabs. And, the, and what gets him to the 50% that he's at now are a 20% that seems to be at least swayed by the idea that you just laid out. That if we do not fight on the side of Donald Trump right now, we will have a permanent deep state control for which we will never see, if not a Republican president again, certainly a populist Republican president in the mold of, of President Trump. Do you do does that? Does that seem to cotton with what you're seeing? Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I think, yeah, like you say, there's certainly there's there's a faction of the party that that, you know, has never liked him and will never like him and probably will yes. never vote for him. And there's a faction that that is that is kind of, you know, permanent. And then yeah, I think that I think you're right. There is that kind of persuadable middle. And you've just seen time and again, you know, none of these other candidates have even gotten close to kind of formulating a message. You know, should you go to the left of Trump? Should you go to the right of Trump? You know, it's kind of unclear. Um, should you you know, try to cut mimic Trump? That's never really yeah. worked. Well, everything that anyone has tried has just never worked to kind of persuade those people. And everything Trump has tried, even in the face of these kind of enormous legal threats, um, has been incredibly successful in convincing them. Just stick with what's familiar. I think there is a bias towards what people know. At this point, most Republicans have already pulled a lever next to his name twice. Yeah. And so it's kind of, let's try it one more time. Let's do it again. Um, you know, no sense kind of switching to anyone. Well, really, it's like the, the two biggest movements that we have seen in the polls are number one, Ron DeSantis going from about 30 to, you know, I think he bottomed out of 13. He's he's done a little bit of a rebound since then. And Vivek Ramaswamy going from who the hell is that to polling above former governors, a sitting senator, uh, a, a lot of people that have a lot of national name recognition. And so DeSantis, we already know. He has been relentlessly attacked by Trump, but Ramaswamy seems to have gotten to the point that he's at by just defending Trump by, by, by just saying Donald Trump's a really great guy, or, or I guess in his own words, the best president of the last uh, century, what, what he's, what he said on stage. So that that's, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time in the media talking about the best way to run this race on, on the right. And I've, heard conservatives talk about it. I've heard uh, moderates talk about it. I've heard liberals and I've heard the media punditry class talk about it endlessly. And I've talked about it endlessly. I don't know if anyone's right. I, I mean, there's, there's, we've seen Chris Christie do the super pugilistic side, gotten him 
next to nowhere. I mean, maybe he, he pops above DeSantis into second place every once in a while in New Hampshire, which is his only hope, but they're both way underwater compared to Trump. We've seen Ramaswamy do the, you know, silver surfer to Galactus, uh, routine for Trump. It's gotten him to 8%. Nice. Considering he had no name recognition before. Now he's there, but I, I have a hard time looking at this and saying, Oh, there's a real clear pathway here. Just do X. I, I agree completely. And that's why I do think, you know, I think Ron Sanders obviously gets a lot, lot of heat in the media and some of it's deserved. I think there's been real kind of management failures in that campaign. I think clearly yeah. in retrospect, the decision to kind of farm the campaign out to a super PAC that has kind of failed colossally. You know, there, there's certain things he has done wrong and things about him personally that clearly have just not struck a chord with voters. But I also think there's an extent to which, you know, going after him, it's it's you you almost do feel bad for some of these candidates that maybe they aren't running that terrible of races. Maybe there's just no way to do it. And that like that is just kind of the gravity of this primary is that it was always going to be Trump. It's going to be Trump. You know, maybe maybe something does happen kind of last minute and someone swoops in and changes that or, you know, something happens on the legal front that really changes that. But as we're sitting right now, it doesn't seem like that. And so maybe that's just how this was always going to go. And, and you know, maybe we can nitpick here and there. They're doing yeah. but actually they're not doing that poorly. They're just dealt, you know, an impossible set of cards um, that that no one could really get out of. And, you know, winning begets winning when you are when you're on top. It's 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 a reason why when he when when Trump skipped the debate, he did do the Tucker Carlson thing. He pulled out a a, a card to play because the only thing that can stop uh, uh, his momentum is any kind of precipitous decline in polling, which he then also gets indicted in Fulton County the next time. So it's like we we, we still have yet to see the monotony of the legal stuff mm-hmm. set in, which is the only thing I think in my mind is left to be a change gate for for this race is maybe people get tired or bored of the the the, the legal stuff but I don't know. In in my mind, I feel like we're running out of things that could even shake up this race. Do you see anything on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I think we're running things. We're running out of time. You know, I think the thing you know, we've seen a lot of writing about you know, kind of the overlap of the intersection of the legal calendar and political calendar. And I agree with you that it seems like that's probably the only thing left that could sink in. But the reality is, you know, by the time these trials begin, even if they begin at the earliest point they've been scheduled, which is probably dubious considering there'll be all sorts of motions and all sorts of yeah. filings that try to push them back. Even then, you still have a significant chunk of delegates that will have already been awarded. You know, if you have a trial starting the day after Super Tuesday or whatever it is, you know, that is when, you know, California, Texas, these huge states are going. And the way Republican primaries work is that a lot of states are winner take all or at least winner take most such that, you know, if Trump beats DeSantis, by two points, it doesn't matter. He's going to win, you know, a yeah. huge swath of delegates. And then, you know, he could get convicted. Anything could happen. It will really be too late, you know, if, the, if these trials are happening now. But because they are, I think there's been a lot of attention to the fact that they're intersecting with the political calendar. Yeah. But, you know, that almost only proves the fact that they're too late because pretty soon once these primaries start rolling, you know, we've seen it happen. We saw it happen in 2016. It's much easier in a Republican primary than a Democratic primary because Democratic primaries are proportional and Republican yeah. primaries are mostly winner take all or, or many are winner take all. It's a lot easier for a Republican front to just start winning. And like you say, winning, get winning. And then suddenly they have, you know, 40 percent of the delegates and they're a runaway train. Also, unless 
and we are we are getting to the thing that I don't like talking about, which is medical stuff. But like, mm-hmm. barring anything like that, uh, we're not. We probably won't even make it to Super Tuesday. Or if Super Tuesday happens, that's that's it. That that's going to be the finale of. I mean, if if the polling remains like this, because let's say you get a Ted Cruz situation like 2016 in Iowa and, and Ron DeSantis shaking hands with everybody at every pizza ranch in the state pays off. He, he has a miracle. Uh, you know, it ain't happening in New Hampshire. Who knows what, what's going to happen in Nevada. And then South Carolina, I think is absolutely Trump country, even with two, you know, favorite, uh, a favorite son and a favorite daughter that, that could be on that ballot. All right. One last Trump question uh, uh, about the, the primary campaign. I have a feeling that we're going to see dropouts before Iowa. I, I think that if we start getting into the holiday season, a lot of these donors are going to start, you know, they're, they're going to have to figure out what jet skis they're going to buy their children and, and, you know, whether or not these are the kind of people that are buying the Lexuses with the bows that you see in the commercials. So they're going to start looking at their finances and saying, I don't know if I need to cut another check uh, going into Iowa so you can win 1%. If you were to make a dropout list with, with the top of it being the people that you think will be out before Iowa, who's on that list? That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I guess you, you know, first, obviously, we've already lost one. We've lost Francis Suarez. My guess, I don't know. That's hard to say because actually, I think the way presidential primaries work now, it is a lot. It's easier than ever to kind of stick around for a long time. And, you know, I think especially we've seen a lot of these campaigns, like I said, basically run out of a super PAC where you have kind of this unlimited money machine. I yeah. think that's less of a concern than it kind of used to be. So I would be surprised, I think, if any of kind of the major, major names. So any know, of the guys on stage. So so let's yeah, say you know, so Suarez Scott, and Will Hurd. And, yeah. yeah, I think, yeah, Will Hurd or Asa Hutchinson, Doug Burgum, those people, you know, probably won't make it there. I don't know if there's anyone I see as particularly likely. I think, I will say, yeah, I mean, I think after Iowa, Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, you know, are going to have very serious conversations. Are they going to want to be embarrassed in their home states? Yeah. You know, know, that's a conversation that's going to have to come after Iowa. I don't know how much incentive they have, especially in a race that's so, you know, kind of Trump is so far ahead and then they're all kind of stuck at about the same level. And, you know, obviously it would really behoove them to kind of consolidate behind DeSantis or Scott or yeah. anyone, you know, kind of any one candidate, but we've seen no sign of that happening at all. So I kind of do think unless they all do it together, which I think is kind of a political fantasy pipe dream, you know, I don't know if I have well, unless 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 it unless it's 2020 behind Biden. You know, true. That's true. That's true. I think um But that usually happens that after. You, that that happens. That happens after. You, you have yeah. to have a few and a few disappointing that, nights. You have organizing kind of principles and figures in the Democratic Party that were able to make that happen that I don't know who would be doing that in Republican. You know, that was you know, Obama played a role in that behind the scenes yeah. for Biden. You know, who's doing that in the Republican Party? You know, I don't know that Ron and McDaniel or Kevin McCarthy you know, no. people that have the power no. to kind of organize their presidential fields like you know Obama or Pelosi. So, you know, I don't know. I, I I'm skeptical and I think a lot of them do actually have the money to kind of stick it through. Maybe that's just because they have one donor funding their super PAC. But, you know, a, a lot of them can kind of keep going. And, you know, at this point, you know, I do think you mentioned the Ted Cruz scenario. I think it's worth noting if you talk to people on the ground in Iowa, there's a bit of uncertainty about Trump's lead there that a lot of people don't yeah. think he's kind of done what's on the ground necessary. So maybe, but but you also have DeSantis. You know, if you saw DeSantis official recently said to Politico, you know, they're not, now they're kind of aiming for second, which which is not too pretty. But, you know, no. so maybe if, if Trump is deserving, but also DeSantis is not too certain, you know, maybe someone can 
get out of the gate in Iowa, you know, there is still this kind of genuine uncertainty that they kind of do have an incentive to stick with it. So I'm not sure if I could answer your question. I think, I don't know that anyone is that incentivized to kind of get out. They, they might as well keep going because, you know, it's not going that great for any of them, but it's not going particularly worse for any of them than anyone else. Well, and, and for, you know, nobody drops out because they're embarrassed. Nobody drops out. Sometimes they drop out because the grass is greener on the other side that dropping out now would promise them a better future in in another administration. And so you would look at anybody on that list that has not already absolutely burnt their bridges with MAGA world. And so Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, those would probably be the two most bold-faced names. I mean, Vivek is obviously already, <laughs> he has made his intentions clear. When he drops out, he will be on stage with Donald Trump. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, other than that, the only thing that I would say is that you're dead right that this has been a super PAC-driven, we are in a super PAC-driven meta. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, though, you got one bad phone call that can make sure that the only reason why anyone drops out is that you can't make payments anymore. That can happen real fast with one, with one bad phone call. So I, I do think we, we might see something collapse if somebody is like, eh, I don't know. I don't want to be embarrassed with, 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 you know, this, this whole thing. All right. Yeah. And I think you are right. Like you, a deal, you know, could a deal be struck, you know, where Trump, make some deal with Scott or Haley or Ramasamy and makes them VP, you know, that's certainly, you know, I don't think that's that far-fetched either that, you know, there's some endorsement, you know, if, if, if they were to drop out promise that they would, you'll get to be on stage with him and then promised running mate or some spot in the cabinet. I, I agree with you. I don't think that is that far-fetched because then again, that gives them an incentive, but there absolutely. has been, there's, there's been some Tim Scott whispers around, around VP. Uh, you know, there was the CNN poll came out last week that showed Nikki Haley doing well against Biden she is somebody that I think if the Trump team liked in 2016 looks at where they're weak and right now that would assuredly be in the suburbs. Uh, Nikki Haley is, is the probably the best person to play there. So who knows? All right, let, let, let's, let's flip over to Biden. The age thing. It's an issue. I don't know how it gets better. He certainly is not going to be getting any younger by the time that, uh, the election day comes around my sense of that, that confidence gap is based almost entirely on his age. Uh, What is there to be done? If anything with, you know, the, the, this problem for him. I mean, I think, you know, I think there, there are things to be done. And I, and I think you do, you, there's, there's certainly evidence of, of times that incumbent presidents have at this point been polling very poorly. And then yes. you know, so over time have kind of built up. I think, you know, if you look at this weekend is actually a great example of what can be done. You know, Biden's just coming off of a fairly grueling foreign trip. Um, you know, just today on his schedule, you know, he's going from Vietnam to Alaska. He's meeting with foreign leaders. He's going to be marking 9-11. Um, in Alaska, he spoke to, I think there was like, you know, 18 foreign leaders while he was in India, had several accomplishments. You're going to see the White House crowing about that. You know, you you see White House aides, they're always saying, and frankly, it's a little bit hard to believe, you know, he's way more energetic than I am. You know, he's, you know, we can barely keep up with him. And I don't know whether that's quite true or not. But at the very least, you're going to see them really promoting, um, you know, foreign trips like this. You already see that in an ad of his trip to Ukraine, you know, kind of yeah. the trip under the cover of night um, that he went to Ukraine. I think it's kind of pushing that narrative. Um, and there's certainly, there's a lot of 
a lot of things you could argue against that narrative. You know, he's given far less interviews than any modern president, far less press conferences. He does barely hold events at night. He's held less events than comparable predecessors. So there's a counter narrative you can build. But if you're the Biden team, there also is a narrative you can build. You know, he's not doing nothing. And, you know, he is doing, you know, you point to these grueling trips, you point to the accomplishments that he's achieved. And, you know, what, something he says a lot is, you know, age begets wisdom and wisdom begets, you know, experience and wisdom. Um, I think that is partly why Biden won the first time. Obviously, he was four years younger and people kind of thought it was maybe only going to last four years, that it was going to kind of be transitional. But there is still something there that I think voters do kind of see, you know, of this kind of, you know, older wise you know kind of wise man he's been in washington forever he's gotten a fair amount a fair amount done which he obviously attributes to his experience and his relationships um so i think there is a narrative that can be built there that can kind of turn age into something of a positive um you know when you talk about experience and wisdom but but you are coming at it from a deep deficit you see even you know a vast majority of democrats are really skeptical but this cake is baked right joe biden is not new to the scene people have known him for a a very very long time and i i think he would have to be very 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 deeply dc brained to think that uh, enough blind items in politico about joe biden doing push-ups in between uh, uh, an 18-hour day is going to change a single mind about whether or not he is more or less you know uh, age weary yeah i don't know whether it'll be successful yes what could be done i do think you know I yeah think, i was like blind i just want to go i think that will be the focus of the advertising you see that you see that in the ukraine ad you see they're they're pushing up more ads at this stage that then campaigns almost ever do and you know a lot of them not about trump trying a lot of them defining biden who you're right is very well defined in the voters eyes but i think trying to kind of mold the image that's already there into one that kind of has a little bit of softer edges and is, you know, this kind of person who, um, you know, has the experience, the wisdom to kind of take us through, you know, take us through the Trump, you know, to, to beat Trump as he's done before. So, yeah, I don't know whether it will it will work. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of the only, only card they have is to try to turn it into a positive in some way and to push about more. I, it's the other thing I think is that, um, you know, he obviously he He's not a great public speaker. He's never been. But I sometimes I think the White House is a little bit too shy. You know, I think a lot of these questions about, you know, Biden hiding in the basement, you know, could be answered. Have him do more interviews, have him do press conferences. He does not do terrible when he's up there. You know, remember the press conference a few years ago where he was there for like two hours and answered every yeah. question. I think that was a pretty dominant day for them, you know, kind of showing actually he can stand up in here and take the questions. <laughs> but clearly they're terrified to do that more. Is that yeah. because he can't handle it anymore. He is too old to stand up for that long. Are they worried about his mouth and what he would say? You know, maybe they're too worried. I don't know. Maybe they do have a reason behind the scenes we don't know about. But I think I do think if they tried pushing him out there more and kind of answering this critique, you know, you can kind of turn around a narrative fairly quickly. Of people are just like, where is he? I don't see him. And you could kind of make him a lot more visible. But maybe he can't physically stand that. I don't know. That's a really good point with with the long press conference. I, the problem in that moment was that it came amidst the Afghanistan debacle and the fact that we had the, the very, very telegenic migrant surges at the border. Uh, you know, that was inflation was starting. So it's like, you know, there, there was, there was a lot there, but it certainly, he was able to stand and deliver. The problem is, and this is, I, I get to, to any solution where you're going to keep him, you're going to limit his ability to be charming, which no matter what you think of Joe Biden, 
there's folksy Joe. He likes getting ice cream and sometimes it's too folksy or it's anachronistic or it's outright weird or creepy, but he, he, he still, he has to live and die by that. When you keep him away from it, you tend to leave yourself open to just sort of the mistakes. And for every time that he can go out there and answer a bunch of questions, he might fall asleep at a dinner in Maui. And that's, that's only the, the, the lights are only going to get brighter on that. But it also just gets to, I think, the 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 thing that we're going to say a lot between now and next November, which is for however how much confidence people have in their candidates, voting against the other guy is going to be the central motivator. And at least from the Biden campaign perspective, from everything that we've seen and heard, that seems to be their number one, you know, uh, 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 Strategies A, B, and C are Trump, Trump, Trump. And I think you see, you know, it's very fascinating in the CNN poll that we just saw. You see, you know, kind of to kind of bridge these two conversations, we we're talking about kind of the love and affection and faith that Republicans voters have in Trump. You know, actually, you know, 60% of Republican voters said in that CNN poll their vote was going to be for Trump and yes. not against Biden. And then for Democrats, it's the exact opposite, just like you say. For Democrats, 60% of Democrats say they're voting against Trump, not for Biden. So you do see for Democrats kind of the best argument they have is this kind of negative polarization, whereas for Republicans, at least for kind of those base voters, um, you know, they are very motivated to vote for their guy. Um, and, and against Biden, too, is obviously a motivator, but but obviously nothing like kind of the animus that the Democratic base feels for Trump. So it is kind of interesting that you have these two campaigns. I think it does tie into the confidence that we were talking about that each side feels in them, you know, kind of have the exact opposite um, kind of driving motivations that they're having from their voters. You know, something that you mentioned that's, uh, I think I might need to go back and, and do some more research on in terms of exact verbiage on stuff, but the soft promise in 2020 from Biden that, that the hints, the behind the scenes, one term president chatter, I know coming to mind was, you know, he wants to be a bridge candidate to a next generation. Never specifically said one term and then I'm out. And anybody who's followed presidential politics knows that nobody gets to the summit of Mount Olympus and then immediately starts planning walking back down. So they everybody wants to run for two terms. And I don't think anybody who worked as hard as Joe Biden to be president was ever going to give up easily. But I do wonder if part of. If there was an element of the Democratic electorate that voted for Joe Biden. With the idea being, all right, it's a bit of a hold your nose, but I hate Trump. I'm terrified about COVID. And this is the guy that I need right now. And he is hinting that he might be a one term president. And one of the big bench that the Democrats have will get their shot coming up next. I wonder if there is a sense of of betrayal and in a very, very, very close electorate. If I don't think any of those people are going to vote for Trump. But might they stay home? Mm-hmm. You know, to me, I think that's the only way you can read these polls. I mean, I think when you see this number of Democrats saying that Biden is too old and that Democrats vote for someone else, like obviously they voted for him only three years ago. He was not yeah. young then. You know, they they voted for an old man. Um, yes, and and they wanted him, and then and now very quickly have decided. But actually, we wanted him once, not again. I think you do. I think to me, that's the way. The way I read that is like there was this kind of you're right, never explicit, but kind of wink at, you know, transitional figure bridge to the next generation um, that, you know, he would get there, get Trump out, 
um, and then and then kind of pass the torch. And maybe Democrat, you know, maybe their Democrats weren't convinced of that when they voted for him, but at the very least, that is what they're hungering for now. And you see Democrats, you know, very much they're ready for that bridge to kind of come to an end for the next generation to come. Yeah. And I do think, yeah, for a lot of them, maybe they they thought that was kind of baked in and implicit to voting for Biden, or they would have been open to him having a second term if his age wasn't clearly starting to show. And you do see um, that it is and that a lot of people have kind of noticed that and taken those signs. Um, and, and I think another thing I touched on in my piece is, you know, this complete gap between kind of you know, Democratic elites and Democratic voters. Yeah. And it is kind of fascinating that Democratic elites do not see like I think they're just too scared to even get to that idea at all um, of kind of a next generation or of that there should be a competitive primary, which um, obviously a lot of Democrats think would be very harmful for the party. But clearly that is what the voters, I mean, that's what their voters are screaming out for. Yes. You, you, you know, you have 70% of Democratic voters don't want Biden as their nominee and yet no other Democrats are stepping up to be that not Biden nominee. So so I, I do think there is that kind of, there was a bit of that implicit promise um, and a lot of Democrats are kind of ready for it to come, but Biden isn't ready and no one in the party <laughs> is kind of ready to kind of push him and say, you know what, sir, like you have to hang it up um, because I think they're terrified. And also part of it was this implicit process promise of getting Trump out and then, yes. you know, we have this new era and, you know, then the future of the Democratic Party can reign. But obviously the reality is Trump was not pushed out. He lost, no. but then he refused to say he lost and now he's running again. So if part of that was this kind of idea of vanquishing Trump, you know, clearly that mission isn't done yet. So so I think that is part of it as well. I mean, he it's certainly what what he will say is, you know, and, and who knows if we'll get any kind of. uh you know, like, hey, I, I thought I was done, too. I, you know, every male in the Democratic Party reminds me of somebody that I knew at one point, And I'm so excited to turn over the, the reins of the party. But job's not done. I have one more uh, 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 one more one more challenge before me. It is interesting. Last thought on this, that the age thing, despite, of course, it marching on for all of us, has seemed to recede from Trump. In a way that it, it very much was a part of the conversation in 2016 and seems to have, I guess, standing next to Biden. Mm -hmm. He yeah, you might not like what comes out of his mouth, but it is it is less uh, uh, diminished in a way that people seem to see with Biden. And and I don't know whether or not because both of them have been talking on television for decades. So uh, we can see the decline in both. And yet it is stuck to Biden in a way that it hasn't with Trump. Yeah. And I think you know, this is the number one critique I get whenever I read about Biden's age. Like you didn't mention that Trump is only you know, three years younger. And I think that's fair. Um, you know, I think it's just true. And obviously voters perceptions are linked to how the media presents it. But I also yeah. think you have to give people some, you know, you have to have some faith in the voter that they're watching these two candidates and they're coming. I hope you're coming by honestly, you know, kind of how they're viewing them. And you just see for voters, it is far less of a concern. And I do think you know, for Trump, and, and frankly, the reality is that Trump is kind of, and, and this point has been made, you know, in Axios recently, in the Associated Press recently, Trump's been running kind of a basement campaign too. You know, he's campaigned yeah. I think, twice in August. Um, you know, he was in Iowa this past weekend for the first time in several weeks. So he's kind of been hiding too, but but I don't know. I think, you know, for Trump, I, I do think part of it is that 
you know, if, if you look at kind of, I think Biden was, at least in 2020 or for most of his career, had this kind of more positive image about him. Yeah. And I think the age kind of soils that for a lot of people that, you know, he's kind of staying on too long or he's maybe losing it or, you know, maybe he's physically not up to the job. Whereas for Trump, obviously, I think he is just a much more polarizing, much more divisive figure. If you're upset about Trump's age, you're probably also upset about eight to 10 other things about Donald Trump. And if you don't care about yes. Donald Trump's age, you're probably already voting for him. Like that just feels so much more baked in. Whereas Biden is a figure who at the beginning of his presidency had, you know, fairly high approval ratings. And then over time, that's kind of dropped and dropped and dropped. And you've had you know, even members of their own party. I think that is the real difference is for Biden, it's, you know, it's Democrats who are really concerned about his age. Whereas for Republicans, you know, they're just not really concerned about Trump about anything, or if they are, you know, there's kind of other vulnerabilities that are maybe more apparent and just more yeah. kind of in your face that are kind of more urgent to them. But but um, but for Biden, you know, this kind of is the a- a- yeah. A- age age is is like a bronze meddler for 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 Trump criticisms at this point. So maybe that's just it. There's just other stuff that's on top. Gabe Fleischer, Wake Up to Politics is the newsletter. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank Mr. Fleischer, you can do so. Letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. That is PX3, guest. Dot com. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at Justin R. Young. Find me live on the Twitch platform, px3live.com, and share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy at px3podcast.com. You can support me with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And of course, you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. Now, the only place you can get bonus content is the Patreon. Take politics seriously. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule and the $10 tier. Get your name right at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Ye old pinball shop. John, TP4 Bongo, Sam, John, Edwin, Kathy Mack, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Brian, Edison, Jeremy, Severio. Sarah Genie, Dr. G, Matthew, Neil, His Nerdiness, Charles, Darren, Idris Arzlanian, Berkeley, Stephen, Nomadic Terran, Molly's de- Delightful Demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, Bassam, D Laser, Nick Wood, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age Mike, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, The Gen, D Really, Chopper, Andrew, and a dog named Checkers. If you would like to join their ranks? You can do so. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 tier. On Friday's edition of the program, we will be going over a very strange story. 
and the expectations around it. Tim Scott is running for president. He's a sitting senator. He is single, i.e. he is unmarried. But is he single? Does he have a girlfriend? Washington Post article says he does, but they've never met her. We dive into the politics of marriage and kids on Friday's edition of the program. You get a bonus episode in the middle of that if you are one of our patrons. But until then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.